starting a new series today. I'll tell you about the stones in a minute, but I want to mention my Uncle Russ. I don't know if I've mentioned him before. Uncle Russ was my, uh, my dad came from a family. He was an only child, and my mom had like two, uh, three brothers, and um, uh, Uncle Russ was the only one in the area. So he was like my only relative uh, growing up in the city of Detroit, and I liked him. Yeah, we saw him pretty regularly. And then um, uh, when I was in my 30s, my mom had cancer and eventually died, and we did the whole hospice thing in our home here in Ann Arbor. And the week before she died, uh, Uncle Russ hadn't been up to visit her in a long time, and so I called him to say, um, you know, time's getting close, you better visit soon, and he never came. And for some reason, I couldn't forgive him for that. Um, so I stopped taking the initiative to see Uncle Russ, I think he reciprocated by my lack of initiative with lack of initiative of his own. Over the next 20 years, I think I saw him twice. Uh, once was at my father's funeral. Uh, and then when my Uncle Russ died not too long ago, I thought, what a, what a waste. You know, I had, this, I had this good uncle. I liked him. He was a good uncle. And this stupid grudge just kept me from enjoying him for 20 years. So. Hell is like, a, is like a hall of mirrors where every slight or act of aggression is reciprocated and invites another reciprocation. And whatever connections begin there, degrade there, and they either blow up from too much heat or they just freeze from too much cold. So forgiveness in the Christian tradition is not like being nice on steroids. Like if you want to be a nice person, you got to learn how to forgive. Forgiveness is an antidote to misery that is necessary to deliver us from evil. So today we're going to start a four-part series um, called Forgiveness, the Fourfold Path. And we are adopting for the four-part series uh, a framework that is provided by a book by Desmond and Mfo Tutu called The Book of Forgiving. So I'd highly recommend that you pick a copy up of The Book of Forgiving by Desmond and Mfo Tutu. That's M-M-F-P-H-O. Desmond Tutu is probably well known to you. He was the Anglican Archbishop uh, during apartheid in South Africa. He's still alive. I think he was just in the hospital recently and made the news. Uh, apartheid, of course, where black people were subject to horrible state-sponsored uh, persecution over a long period of time. Uh, uh, apartheid was overturned in 1994, and President Mandela, Nelson Mandela, started the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and he asked Archbishop Tutu to lead this. And this is just a Wikipedia entry on the Truth and Reconciliation Commi uh, Commission. Witnesses who were identified as victims of gross human rights violations were invited to give statements about their experiences, and some were selected for public hearings. Perpetrators of violence could also give testimony and request amnesty from both civil and criminal prosecution. So this Truth and Reconciliation Committee uh, Commission is widely credited with aiding the transition to democracy in South Africa by essentially preventing a bloodbath of vengeance that would have been expected and, and normal, uh, leading to more uh, cycles of violence in that nation. Uh, it's actually what we haven't done in the United States, right, uh, to address our original sins, uh, the shame of slavery, and our genocide of the original inhabitants of this place. We've never had like an explicit um, coming to accounts of what happened. 
where victims could say what happened and people could face it and deal with it and we would deal with it all as as a community. So that was a huge contribution that Desmond Tutu made. And then his daughter, uh, Empho Tutu, um, has a unique perspective as a black woman under apartheid. I mean, just think about that. You're black and you're a woman, you're under apartheid. Um, it doesn't, doesn't end until 1994. Empho is ordained in 2004, I think just a, a few years after women's ordination was finally allowed in the Church of South Africa. Many still in the church opposed women priests. And then in 2016, she uh, finally married a woman. She was gay and she had to turn in her ordination papers. So let's just say the book is not one of those Pollyanna perspectives on the topic of forgiveness. If any two people have the right to speak about forgiveness, it's Desmond and Empho Tutu. So if you are struggling, as we all do, with forgiveness, I want to suggest that you pick up the book and use it as a guide and there is two aids that are recommended in the book. I'm, I'm practicing these uh, myself, and I wanted to mention them to you. The first is that you um, uh, have a journal. You just you know pick a little notebook or something, and you pick a forgiveness issue that you want to process in your life, big or small. It could be a smaller issue, just to kind of work the process in something that's a little easier. Um, and that you pick up a stone to represent uh, the person or persons that you're working on forgiving. Um, I actually brought a bunch of stones um, in case you don't have access to stones, being <laughs> modern people, you know, don't, don't ever go outside, but got a bunch of stones, you know, Steve said, being named uh, Stephen, uh, what are the stones for? Last week in our scapegoating series, we talked about the stoning of Stephen, and, and no, it's not that, and, and, it's, and it's not the story of, of uh, David and Goliath, you know, where David took five smooth stones, and then he picked out a, you know, kind of a badass, and he was, you know, <laughs> no, this is not those use of the stones. You pick, you pick up a stone to represent a person that you need to forgive. So I, I've, I actually, I've got a very kind of little concrete stone, it's very cool, and it's, it's a little bit big, to, and you carry the stone around with you while you're processing this, like for the whole month, say. Uh, I picked a little bit larger stone so that I like, wouldn't forget that I'm processing it, <laughs> and so that I'd be incentivized to get rid of the stone, so that it'd be a little bit bulky. Um, but pick out a stone if you'd like, or you can you know, go, go for a walk and, and find a stone uh, and uh, use that. As, and it, probably at the end of the series, we'll, for those who are ready, um, We'll give you a chance to leave your stone here at the altar if you want to, uh, though for many of us it might take longer than, than a month and four, four sermons. So these are the four steps that we'll be considering over the next four weeks. Telling your story is the first step, uh, naming the hurt, granting forgiveness, and then renewing or release, releasing the relationship. So I, I like that fourth one especially because it implies that forgiveness doesn't always uh, mean re-engaging the one who has harmed us. Um, sometimes it's actually a way of letting go of that relationship or that person entirely depending on the circumstances. So today we're looking at the first step on this fourfold path which is simply telling the story of what happened to us that we're struggling with. Uh, telling the story. Nothing more than that. Just telling the story. Literally telling someone what happened 
in detail if needed. And usually it is needed if it's a significant issue. And again, the purpose of telling this story is not to resolve anything, but to just get it out on the table so it's not just rattling around in your skull. This is um, like easier said than done. It sounds kind of easy, but it's easier said than done sometimes. As some of you know, I lost my wife of 42 years suddenly in 2012. It's kind of fun to hear about the, the uh, scholarship um, you know, uh, awards given out today at, at uh, church. Nancy uh, led the single mom's ministry at the old church. And um, this, uh, she died at a really stressful for other reasons time. Um, it, it actually happened the, the day I first preached on uh, Third Way. If you know anything about our church, you know the, might know the significance of that. Won't go into it here. Um, Nancy had been recovering from an ankle injury uh, and didn't come to church that Sunday. And when I came home, I found her dead. Um, and you know, with, with, I didn't quite realize this, but it totally makes sense. Uh, with any unexpected death, uh, the police show up with the 9-11 responders and they stay there until they figure out like what happened. How did the person die? This happened on the weekend, so like it took a while for get all the, to get all the people there. So I had a police car, you know, outside of my house for about three hours until eventually the coroner, you know, coroner who's on call comes and examines the body, and then the two detectives come and they interview you, like, well, what happened? And you've got to tell the story, and you kind of realize, oh, you know, on on, on uh, the the t- TV crime drama, there's you know they're wondering how did this person die, and they're they're. They're uh, asking questions in an inquisitive sort of way, and you're like in shock, and you're responding. It was just a very creepy experience. For months, I slept with the light on and the uh, NPR radio playing, and, and it would, you know, one tragedy after another all over the world. And I just thought, this is probably not good for me to be just listening to this through the night, you know, <laughs> BBC, you know. Um, and I was plagued by nightmares. Um, uh, and they would be like nightmares of that first, like, shocking discovery. And so, you know, being a, a smart pastor, a year later, I go, I go to some, some counts for a counselor to talk about this. And after we've had a few sessions, he says, you know, it would really help, I think, if you could just recount in detail, like that day of coming home from church and discovering Nancy. And I was like, whoa, you mean like here? I mean, now, are you really sure this is a good idea? This sounds like it might be malpractice. This is not a good idea. You know, I, I want to get this scene out of my head. I do not want to recount it and reinforce it. He said, trust me, this will help. And as I told him, like detail by detail, he, all he did was he listened calmly. He asked only clarifying questions. He expressed empathy. Uh, his calm calmed me. And then, you know, I realized, hey, it, it was okay. I, I could do this. I had wrapped that memory up in so many layers of fear that all I could see was the fear. And so telling my story was like uh, taking those layers of fear off. And actually, it was the, that was the last time I had nightmares about that, about that uh, night. So <clears throat> I need some water. I wonder... If I could use this, what do you think? No? <laughs> That'd be great. That's, that's good. Thanks, Sam. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, you got to squeeze it and everything. That's, a, that's quite a water bottle. 
<laughs> My stepdaughter has a water bottle like that. I know that. Um, you know, what's that got to do with forgiveness, you might say? Well, you know, if, if, if you've lost someone, you know that it's, it's normal to feel guilty when someone dies. It's just like irrationally. As I un unpack the details of that day and my responses to those details, which didn't come out until I told the details, um, I realized that I had been blaming myself. Why didn't I check on Nancy earlier before I left for church? Why did I stay late that Sunday? It wouldn't have made any difference. Then, you know, did getting her pregnant at 18 lead to the stresses that shortened her lifespan? And all that couldn't come out until I started to tell the basic details of the story. Only then could I, like, start to uh, set myself free from some of the blame traps that I had left for myself. After I finished this conversation with the counselor, he said, well, how'd that feel? And I said, well, that was hard, but it was okay. Um, actually, it was a relief. I feel better. Uh, and then he said, you know, you may have to tell that same story a few more times in the next month uh, just to secure it in your mind as something that's safe for you to do. So think about who you could, who you could tell that to again. So when something traumatic happens, we, we often feel like passive victims. And there's no power and there's no agency, no sense that we can do something, and there's no dignity in just feeling like you're a victim. Power, agency, and dignity begin to be restored when we simply tell the story. So the Bible would be a shell of what it is if people who suffered at the hands of others hadn't told their stories to someone. Uh, the book of Genesis, the first book in, in the Bible, sometimes called the Hebrew Bible because it's the uh, story of Israel, uh, features the story of Abraham and Sarah, or sometimes Sarai before her name is changed to Sarah, who are the founders of faith in, in the Bible. Uh, Sarah, turns out, had a slave named Hagar. And Hagar's story is a very telling example of telling your story. So Hagar was a, a classic scapegoat. We just finished our scapegoat series. Hagar was a classic scapegoat who was uh, displacing the tension between Sarah and Abraham who had their own issues with each other, including Abraham twice putting Sarah at risk of right rape by telling warlords that uh, they were traveling through their territories that she was her sister, not his wife, giving them essentially carte blanche to, uh, to take her. Um, Sarah couldn't conceive, which in that context would have certainly been another occasion of marital tension. So Sarai urges her husband to sleep with her slave woman, Hagar. Actually, slave girl is the term in the text. And good husband that he is, Abraham obliges, and Hagar conceives. And we pick up the account in uh, Genesis chapter 16, verse um, 4 through 6. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived in 10 years in the land of Canaan, uh, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. 
Then Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Tension between Abram and Sarai now. And Abram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. Dealt harshly probably means she beat her. Um, While Abraham, the, the father of the child that she's carrying, just stands by passively to, in order to gain peace with his wife by using the scapegoat. So, you know, a pregnant, pregnant slave woman wandering in the wilderness didn't have good prospects. You know, at best, a caravan might come by and she'd offer herself as a prostitute. Things must have been really bad for her to run away. Um, but it says, an angel of the Lord came to her and says, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai. So identifies her, knows her name, knows her position. Where have you come from and where are you going? You know, where have you come from? Where are you going? You're in the middle of something. You have a past and you have a future. That means like, what's your story? And it's interesting to me that it's an angel of the Lord here. Um, the tradition in the, in the Jewish culture was the angel of the Lord usually referred to like a human, someone who perceived to be a human being who was actually a messenger of the Lord. That was actually reflected in our reading today from, uh, from Hebrews. Uh, and so this is like perhaps a person that Hagar is talking to, telling her story. And this person, representing the Lord, says in effect, God's got you covered. Go back now and you shall bear a son and he shall be called Ishmael, which means God hears. This is a fitting name because God has just heard Hagar's story. But of course, there's more to the story. Hagar does return and things maybe were a little bit better for a time, but then Sarah's jealousy comes back with a vengeance after she finally, Sarah that is, conceives and gives birth to Isaac. And then we pick up the story in, uh, in verse 8 of uh, chapter 21. The child grew and was weaned. So um, this is Isaac who was born to Sarah. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Probably didn't do that for Ishmael. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abram, uh, playing with her son Isaac. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. In other words, that's classic scapegoat language, isn't it? Cast her out, uh, the slave woman, with her son. For the uh, son of the slave woman shall not inherit along with my son Isaac. The matter was very distressing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for it is through Isaac that your offspring shall be named for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and uh, a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. So it's the same old, same old, right, for, for Hagar. Sarah turns on her 
and Abraham goes along, only it's even worse because Abraham's God tells Abraham to solve the rivalry between Sarah and Hagar by doing whatever Sarah decides. So from Hagar's perspective, now it's like three against one, Abraham, Sarah, and Abram's God, except that Abraham's God follows Hagar into the wilderness to look after her. And we pick that up in uh, verse 15. Otherwise, I'd be really, really kind of have an issue with God and how he handled this whole situation. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, do not let me look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the voice. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with a bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So she was finally delivered from this dysfunctional Abraham and Sarah business and was able to survive on her own. What a, what a story. Um, you know, to, to say that the Bible is inspired doesn't mean like God himself took a pen and like... Um, found some scrolls and wrote the words down and that's the, the Bible. It means that a community of people um, discern the spirit operating through some of the stories that were circulating among them. Like some of the stories in particular seem to have this like powerful effect on people. And so those stories in particular were preserved into what we call the Bible. That's what it means to say the Bible is inspired. So we know what we know about Hagar, a slave woman with no privilege, no standing, because Hagar told her story to someone. She figured out a way to tell her story of how she was treated. And, and it's not like Hagar grew up in the world of therapy. You know, her, her world was not swarming with sympathetic people trained to listen to abused women. Despite everything that was stacked against her, Hagar found a way to tell her story. She found someone who listened, who heard, who took note of her story, and against all odds, this story made it into Israel's sacred text, even though it made the mother and father of faith look pretty darn bad. You know, Hagar um, traditionally is the, mother, uh, is the mother of Ishmael and by Islamic tradition regarded as a prophet in Islam. So Muhammad claimed lineage to Abraham through Ishmael, not Isaac. Ishmael and his descendants in the biblical text itself were given the, the uh, eastern regions, which would now be occupied by the Arab peoples. By Muslim tradition, Ishmael actually died in Mecca in Saudi Arabia, the, 
Saudi Arabian, uh, the Muslim uh, holy site of Mecca. Now, the focus in the Hebrew Bible, though, is Abraham and his second son, Isaac, not his first son, Ishmael. The, the God of the Bible is what? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a patriarchal time, so Sarah doesn't even make the cut, you know, of the God of. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let alone Hagar. Maybe this is God's way of saying that no matter how convinced we are that no one wants to hear our story, it wouldn't do any good to tell anyone. The whole world is stacked against us anyway, so what's the use? Our story deserves to be heard by somebody. It's a story worth telling because it's part of a, actually a much bigger story of redemption that is playing out. So I, I want to give a few recommendations for how to proceed with this first step. But first I thought usually we take a minute or two for quiet reflection. I thought we'd do that just before I give these recommendations. And I want to suggest that you um, just take 30 seconds or so, maybe a minute, we'll see how long uh, I'll time it. Um, and just reflect on, um, is there a relationship in my life now or an issue in my life that I would be like ready and willing to use this process for? Doesn't have to be the biggest issue. It might actually be, maybe you just want to start with a simple issue, a work relationship or something where it's not, everything is not at stake for you. Um, just take 30 seconds or so and just ask the Spirit to bring someone to mind that you could stand to forgive and then I'll make some recommendations with that person in mind if you don't mind. So just close your eyes, relax and just be open. Okay. In this case, you know you're supposed to do it because you really don't want to do it. <laughs> you feel kind of crummy about it. It's like, can we think about something else? That's, that's a good sign that this is maybe your, maybe your person. Um, so the first thing would be to just tell your story as a step to restore power, agency, and dignity. Um, I'd recommend that you actually write it out uh, first. So in, in a sense, writing it down on paper is a way to tell the story to yourself just to face it yourself. And just, just include the facts. What happened? What, what's going on in the relationship that's so troubling? What's the injury? What's the complaint that you feel? Um, err on the side of being raw in the, in the write-up. Um, don't bother yourself with how you should be feeling or how a good Christian would respond or a you know, whole individual would respond. That, that's, that's, that's a bunch of blah, blah, blah. Just ignore that stuff. Talk about, consult yourself like you're one of the psalmists, you know, and you're just like getting it out and put it down. The details of what happened and then like how you feel about it, what, what your gut level, honest, raw feelings are, are about that situation that you're, you're noting. So the first step is just write it down. You could use a journal for that or whatever. And then um, second would be pick out someone you trust to listen well 
and tell the, the story to them. Um, this should be someone uh, who can keep a confidence. It's probably better if it's someone who doesn't have a personal stake in the details of your story, so you're not using the story to like campaign to escape the the person or to, you know make their life miserable. This is not vengeance. This is forgiveness. Um, uh, it's really best if the person is, that you talk to isn't connected uh, to the person who mistreated you or you, ha you have the relational struggle with. But pick someone out uh, who you think can listen well and tell your story to them. Um, and then the, the other thing I'd say is, you know, let's become the kind of people that others could tell their story to. You know, let's us become the kind of people that other people could tell their stories to. Otherwise, this is not going to work. Um, you know, a really negative example of that in the Bible is the uh, book of Job. You know, Job is like, you know, a series of unfortunate events. Job loses like everything except his wife who kind of, you know, blames him for the, what happened. And, and the story features Job and his crummy friends. Um, and his crummy friends prefer, prefer to believe that the catastrophic issues that happen to Job are actually preventable. If only Job had handled himself differently. And so he's telling his story of woe to his crummy friends, and they're nitpicking him. And the comforters are now part of his story of woe, and he's got no one to tell them about, except God, who comes through for him at the end and says, you crummy friends are the crummiest friends in the world. And Job is like, thank you, I needed that. This is actually a very common response to the suffering of others. It scares us when bad things happen to other people, especially if we identify with those people, because those bad things could happen to us. And so it comforts us to think that bad things only happen to our friend because they did something wrong or they did something that brought it on. Um, you know, the friend who had a heart attack, oh man, he had a terrible diet, or I told him to exercise more, or whatever. There's like a powerful unconscious bias that we have to fix and fault find instead of listen to people. So that, that inclination we have when someone's telling us their trouble to want to fix it, that's more about our discomfort with the possibility that these things could happen to us than our desire to actually fix it. The, we have this powerful unconscious bias to fix and fault find instead of listen to others. And so while we're listening, our mind is preoccupied. This happened to you because, or it can't be as bad as you think, or look at it this way and it won't seem so bad. Do you ever find yourself like giving people perspectives like that? Think about it this way and it's not so bad. That's comfort for you, not comfort for them. So I mentioned last week that a large portion of men think sexism is a thing of the past and a similar per uh, percentage of white people think uh, racism is really not very prevalent. And that's like the Job's crummy friend phenomenon at work at massive scale. So, because we have this powerful tendency to unconsciously be judgmental towards the suffering of others, to fault find the sufferers, and that of course is part of the scapegoat dynamic as well, isn't it? So it makes us crummy friends. So my final recommendation is let's not be crummy friends. Amen. <laughs>